when, when David Ben-Gurion proclaimed Israel's independence in 1948, a couple things happened. You know, a lot of people saw the stopwatch, God's stopwatch start. And then you have to also realize the Ottoman Empire had just fallen. Arab nations around there were scratching their heads. How is it possible that if Allah is supreme, that these infidels could bring down the Ottoman Empire? And now they're going to have the audacity and, and fulfilled the abomination of putting a Jewish state right in the center of what was so recently the Ottoman Empire. And they were outraged. They, they, they didn't know where to vent their anger. But they had Jewish communities that had been living in their midst pre-Islam. There are Jewish communities in most of these Arab areas that had been there before Islam was even a thought. And they were vibrant, integral parts of their society, of their cuisine, of their culture, of their economy. And all of a sudden, the, you know, they were second-class citizens, mind you. Yes, if, you know, if, if a Jew's walking on a sidewalk and, and a Muslim comes by, they've got to step off the gutter so that they're not higher than them. They had to live in those kind of conditions, but they did. But the reality is now you, now you have this, the angst that, that is pent up and trying to get out that there's this Jewish state in the center of what was the Arab Emirate, and the only cat they had to kick, the only wall they had to punch were their own local Jewish communities, and they did. Welcome to the Destined to Win podcast with Pastor Tim Masters. Pastor Tim is the senior pastor of Victorious Life Christian Center in Flagstaff, Arizona, welcoming a guest speaker for this message. I'm Joe Hardy, inviting you to join us for worship services Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Flagstaff Middle School Complex. For more information on the ministries of Victorious Life Christian Center or to make a donation, Visit us online at vlccaz.org. That's vlccaz.org. Now, with today's message, here's a word from our guest. Folks, we need to be on the side of Israel. And we need to do that. And in doing that, we open our hearts for God to do all the blessings and the promises. So today, I encourage you, take your notepads out. Get your, your best memory on to open up to receive everything we can. And let's welcome Christians United for Israel and Randy Neal this morning as he comes. Thank you, Pastor Tim. Good morning. I sure do appreciate the invitation to be here. You know, I, I've spoken to Pastor Tim on the phone for, you know, several times over the last few months, and uh, got, you know, got to know him and got to get, spend some time face to face. Got to kind of get a sense of the temperature and spirit of this church, and we've broken bread together, and uh, getting a little bit there. There we go. And uh, I'm going to give you a couple of disclaimers here in a minute. But one thing I just want to make sure that I, that I front load this before I forget and get carried up in my message. If you don't have a home church and you are looking, you know, one of the prerequisites that you have, and, and I see this across the country increasingly, ever increasingly, that people are looking at the, at the issues and the facts that Pastor Tim just uh, alluded to, that, you know, that standing with Israel is actually a cornerstone uh, for a lot of Christians. I believe, I'll just say it straight up, I don't th- you can't call yourself a Christian if you don't love what God loves. And uh, my Bible, from the first you know, book to the last, there's a thread that runs through there that makes it pretty clear that he loves and has plans and purposes for Israel and the Jewish people. And so uh, if you are looking, if it's a prerequisite for you for a home church, that you're in a church that that doesn't just think that it's okay to support Israel, but thinks it's, it's at an imperative and is not ashamed to do it, and, they're, and they'll wear it on their sleeve, and they'll say it out loud in the town square, you're in that church right now. So uh, give them a six-week test drive and see if I'm not telling you the truth. So, uh, you know, but those other disclaimers uh, are that 
we are an even, you know, Christian Giant for Israel, we're an evangelical Christian organization. We don't make, when I meet with Jewish leaders, I sh- shared this last night, and I'll share it again tonight, because people will Google us, and they'll get, you know, if you are a Christian that loves Israel, you, you will not lack critics or enemies. And, uh, and so they'll, they'll get their blog sites going. So let me blow some fog away and make sure that, uh, that we're on the same page. We are not an interfaith organization. We are not an ecumenical organization. We are an evangelical Christian organization. When I meet with a Jewish leader, president of a rabbinical association, CEO of the Jewish Federation of a town, I, you know, they know, I, I make it very clear. I believe Jesus Christ is the Messiah. I don't make a secret about it, and I don't make an apology for it. Uh, the, you know, the caveat that distinguishes us from many other very noble, worthy, uh, great uh, pro-Israel Christian organizations is that I, I don't demand that they agree with me theologically before I'm going to commit to stand with them unwaveringly. And that's, the, the, you know, that's something that, that's kind of new on the horizon. Uh, there are organizations that target Jews because they're Jews. And the love and relationship is about as deep and long-lived as the appliance salesman at a department store when they finally realize that you're not going to buy the refrigerator today and they move on to the next couple. And I think that we need to change seasons. I think, you know, the, the Jewish people have heard the gospel at the tip of a spear or a sword or at the steps of a gallows or with a track being shoved down their throat at a bus stop, I think we need to roll up our sleeves and, and let them actually see it and feel it. So, so why did God choose Israel? You know, I believe that God chose Israel for a number of reasons, some that are, beyond, that are within his mysteries and beyond our ability to comprehend, and, and they'll be revealed to us as he glorifies himself as, as things unfold. But there's a lot of folks that believe that when when the Jews did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah, that God, the, creator, the omnipotent, all-knowing creator of the universe, did not see that coming. And, uh, and he, decided, he had to take a step back and scratch his head and come up with a plan B. And I would tell you that the reason that, that the Jews did not accept Jesus as the Messiah, and I will point to that picture that's on the wall back there, the lion and the lamb. They were watching for the lion. They weren't expecting the lamb of God. And they were watching for the lion. And when he comes back again, he's going to come back as the lion. Let me make something really clear to you. Jesus was not a Christian. Mary was not a Catholic. And John was not a Baptist. They were all Jews. I believe that, that one of the you know, most important reasons for, for us to look at why God chose Israel, among many others, is because he's a promise keeper. You know, let's take a look at some, you know, look at this passage. Every one of you have stood on this. And before we're going to go any further, I touched on this last night, but I'm going to go a little deeper tonight, or this morning. You, you couldn't take hardly one row of this. This is a nice audience that we have. You couldn't take one row, maybe two rows of people. Man, I don't know, this, your worship slayed me. It's so nice to be led in worship by a team that's already at the foot of the throne. Yeah. I, may, I may need a Kleenex here in a minute. So, uh, but you can't, you can't grab a handful of people without having someone, and maybe they aren't going to be transparent and, and courageous enough to say it out loud, but there are people in this church and right now that is wrestling and grappling with a life issue, and they don't see light at the end of the tunnel. Pastor Tim and I are going to go to Israel on January 13th along with 32 other pa- pastors from across this, the Nevada, Arizona, Utah region. And one of the things I love about standing back and watching pastors that arrive with the somewhat arrogant mindset that, that Christians have a monopoly on a relationship with God. And they go down to the, to the Western Wall and they see rabbis that they don't understand anything about with tears running down their face. And they realize that at that place, praying to God is a local call. And there are people in this audience today that are grappling with issues that they don't know the solutions to. And they don't even know if they can hear a dial tone. And so I'm going to suggest to you that if you delve in to look at what the Word of God says about Israel, you're not going to emerge out the other end being a some fringy, wacky, kooky, 
rabid Zionist advocate. If you are, you can join CUFR. I say that jokingly. You know the worst thing that's going to happen? You're going to emerge out the other end realizing that God is in the business of doing what he said he's going to do. Your faith rests in a God that keeps his promises. This is a passage, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Is that to the Jew or is that to you? It's to us, but it was, you can take it and claim it, but it was written to the Jew first and to Israel. It's a promise that he made to Israel and it's a promise that he hasn't broken, but we can apply it to our life as well. Let's look at some of the promises that we stand on in the Hebrew Scriptures, a.k.a. the New Testament. And we've got to ask ourselves, how do we know that these promises are true? How do we know that these passages can be applied to our life, that we can stand on them? Hebrews 13, for the Lord has said, I will never leave nor forsaken you. Romans 10, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. John 1, 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John 20, 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. In his name, remember that last part, in his name. John 11, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Why did God choose Israel? To reveal and glorify himself and to assure us that he keeps his promises. Genesis 12, 3. We're going to rifle through this. We've got a lot of ground to cover. I will bless those that bless you. I will curse him that curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we touched on it last night. We'll probably touch on it again tonight because it's a very important scripture to try to unpack. And, and if Pastor Tim hasn't already, he could do a several-week Bible study just on those three lines. There are millions of American Christians that believe in their heart that the incredible station that this nation has enjoyed as a world power, opportunity beyond what we could ever earn or deserve, is directly related to the fact that we were the first nation to recognize the reestablishment of the Jewish homeland and, and have, for the most part, been one of her most unwavering, staunchest friends. And I will curse thee that curse thee, you know, Take a look at the, at the empires that chose to deal harshly with the Jewish people. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. If it has to do with energy, if it has to do anything to do with enhancing the quality of life to the international community, extending the days of life, energy, environment, feeding the world, leaving the world a cleaner, healthier place, communication, energy, medicine, you, you can almost always find... Israeli fingerprints directly on these things that are changing the world, changing, you know, changing technology. If you take a look at the deserts of southern Arizona, uh, you go down to Tucson, you go over to New Mexico, and then you look at the deserts over there. If you want to be a farmer in those areas, then you better think that there's a great you know, demand for tumbleweeds or creosote. And these are the same type of de deserts that you see throughout New Mexico and Arizona, almost identical, same type of water challenges. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Families means tribes. Families means nations. Those tomatoes in that hothouse that are growing with a fraction of the water that you'd think that they would need are growing in a desert near Sterot in, in Israel that has the same, if you step outside the hothouse, you'd think that you were in Arizona, in southern Arizona or in New Mexico. But, is, but Israeli technology with water reclamation and recycling and drip irrigation technology and hothouse technology and, and hybrid, you know, with, with different types of plants, they're, they're, this place that's in the desert, they can feed themselves and they export the excess to the rest of the world. The Navajo Nation, Ben Shelley, the former president of the Navajo Nation, the largest First Nations uh, you know, family and tribe in the entire country, it sweeps from New Mexico well into Arizona, uh, the former president, Ben Shelley, he, heard, you know, he was challenged. His farmers, hundreds of farmers that are trying to, you know, their, their farms are little more than asphalt parking lots when it comes to their productivity. But he heard that Israel had the exact same challenges that his farmers faced, and he was encouraged, and provision was made for him to go to Israel to witness it for himself. He saw it, and he couldn't believe it. 
Israeli tech, you know, agriculture experts came back to Shiprock, New Mexico to meet with the leaders and farmers of the Navajo Nation, and they are in the process. They're, now, we're not sure how it's going to unfold. There may be some bureaucratic detours because they're, they're bringing in, they're looking and sorting out things for a new president. But if the new president sees the merit of bringing that technology to those Navajo farmers, they're on the threshold of seeing Israeli techno agriculture technology change their lives. When Netanyahu visited my home state of California, and my home state, until last week, our drought was historic. We, get, we were flooded, and we're getting flooded again this week. But, but months ago, where I live in Sacramento, the Folsom Water Reservoir came within inches of going below the intake duct, the, the worst drought in our recorded history. And so when Jerry Brown met with Netanyahu, the first thing he wanted to talk about was, how can you help us with our water situation? How can you help us with water recycling, with water reclamation? with our agriculture. I mean, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So now we're going to change gears, and we're going to take a look at some predictive prophecies. I'm not talking about end-time prophecies. I'm talking about present-day prophecies. I believe we're not, we're, we're not at Ezekiel 38 yet, and that takes some faith for you to look forward to Ezekiel 38. But I, I think that I know with my heart that we have one foot in Ezekiel 36, and another one's about to set down in Ezekiel 37. And so, if you take a look at David's mighty men, it says about the sons of Issachar, and this is, you know, there are people that look at end-time prophecy. They go to every conference that's within drive time. They buy every DVD. They buy every CD. They buy every book. They, they follow end-time prophecy like it's a Sudoku puzzle. And they get giddy when they connect the dots in the news. That's not what end-time prophecy is for. The sons of Issachar understood the signs of the time so they knew what Israel had to do. And that's what, that's what prophecy is for you, so that you can understand the signs of the time so that you can know what we need to do. And, and we're not going to look at those. We're going to look at predicted prophecies that are manifesting themselves and being fulfilled all around us so that we can be reminded that God is a promise keeper and he's in the business of doing what he said he's going to do. When, when Pastor Tim and I go to, I don't know how that got there, when we get to uh, Israel, uh, one of the first stops that we're going to make in Jerusalem is going to be overlooking the old city. And then we're going to go down a road that is definitely not OSHA compliant, I assure you. It is very steep and curvy and, and slippery from the thousands upon thousands of souls that have tread upon it. I mean souls on the bottoms of your shoes, by the way, and, and souls with an uppercase S, too. Uh, but when you get down to the bottom, you're going to find yourself at the Church of Agony, the Church of All Nations. You do a 180 and you look across the street and you're going to see the, the, one of the gates of the old city, the, the Golden Gate. Scholars will tell you that this is the gate. It's been rebuilt, but it's in the location approximately that that is the gate that Jesus rode through on the colt on Palm Sunday. However, Suleiman the Magnificent, he'd heard a rumor during the days of the Ottoman Empire, you know, about 500 years, or about 1,500 years, I'm sorry. Got the, got the date here. <laughs> about 500 years after Jesus rode through that gate, 1500, 1,500 years after Jesus rode through that gate, he hears, the, the, he hears this rumor that, that the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, is going to go through those gates. This is the Ottoman Empire, the Arab Emirate. Suleiman the Magnificent, he says, not on my watch, there's not going to be no Jewish Messiah going through those gates. And so what does he do to keep the Jewish Messiah out? He bricks and mortars them shut. Which is, yeah, that's a sure fix to keep the Messiah out, is some bricks and mortar. But Ezekiel, 500 years before Jesus rode through those gates, this is what Ezekiel writes. This gate shall be shut, it shall not be open, and no man shall enter by it, because the Lord God of Israel is entered by it, therefore it shall be shut. As for the prince, because he is the prince, he may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by it by the way of the vestibule of the gateway and go out the same way. You can reduce it to coincidence if you want. I kind of think that it's worthy of more than that. Zechariah, thus says the Lord, I will return. Now, when we get to, Pastor Tim, when we get to the old city in Jerusalem, regardless of how behind schedule we are and regardless of how pushy our guide is to keep us on schedule, we're going to stop and we're going to hit the pause button. We're going to take a deep breath and somebody's going to open their iPhone and open up their Bible app or they're going to crack open their Bible to Zechariah 8 and somebody's going to read these passages aloud while everybody else looks around them and sees that every word has been fulfilled, and it's teeming and manifested around them as the words are being read. 
Thus says the Lord your God, I'll return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand because of great age. And I assure you that as it's being read, there will be old men and old women walking by with their staff in their hand. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. We'll be there on a Friday, just before Shabbat, and the boys and girls will be running home trying to get there before sundown. And last time I was there, Pastor Joey Steelman from Lakeview Assembly of God in Stockton, California, helped a little girl carry her trike up the stairs so that she could make it home in time for Shabbat. It's just, don't reduce this stuff to a coincidence. This is God's way of saying, I am in the business of keeping my promises. Genesis 13, you can't believe... John 3.16, if you're not going to believe Genesis 13.16. Lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south and east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your descendants, everybody together, forever. Amos 9, we touched on this last night. Benjamin Netanyahu wrapped up his address at the UN a couple times ago with Amos 9. I'll bring my exiled people of Israel back from distant lands, and he has. And they will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them again, and they have. They will plant vineyards and gardens, and they do. They will eat their crops and drink their wine. I will firmly plant them there in their own land, and they will never again be uprooted from the land I've given them, says the Lord your God. Isaiah 11, he will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. This is one of my favorite stories. I covered the 13 states west of Nebraska, and that includes Alaska, and this story is, I love to dovetail this because this is a great story. It doesn't just show us that God is a promise keeper. It also shows us that he has a very dry sense of humor, as do I. When, when David Ben-Gurion proclaimed Israel's independence in 1948, a couple things happened. You know, a lot of people saw the stopwatch, God's stopwatch start. And then you have to also realize the Ottoman Empire had just fallen Arab nations around there were scratching their heads. How is it possible that if Allah is supreme, that these infidels could bring down the Ottoman Empire? And now they're going to have the audacity and, and fulfill the abomination of putting a Jewish state right in the center of what was so recently the Ottoman Empire? And they were outraged. They, they, they didn't know where to vent their anger. But they had Jewish communities that had been living in their midst pre-Islam. There are Jewish communities in most of these Arab areas that had been there before Islam was even a thought. And they were vibrant, integral parts of their society, of their cuisine, of their culture, of their economy. And all of a sudden, the, you know, they were second-class citizens, mind you, yes. If, you know, if, if a Jew's walking on a sidewalk and, and a Muslim comes by, they've got to step off the gutter so that they're not higher than them. They had to live in those kind of conditions, but they did. But the reality is now you, now you have this, the angst that, that is pent up and trying to get out that there's this Jewish state in the center of what was the Arab Emirate, and the only cat they had to kick, the only wall they had to punch were their own local Jewish communities, and they did. They were lynching men in the town square. They were raping women. They were you know, stealing daughters to become wives. They were burning homes and stores and synagogues. And, and the great, great Britain was the supreme world power at the time. And they were holding back rioting mobs of Arabs that were trying to get their hands on the local Jewish community while, they, while the local Arab community was saying, yeah, sure, you can leave and flee to Palestine or wh whoever will have you, but you're going to leave all your property here. And, they, and everything that they'd had and earned and worked for remained with the state, and they would be lucky if they could flee with the shirt on their back. And so you've got this infant state of Israel that doesn't really have the bandwidth to do the type of emergency airlifts that were necessary. But money was pouring in from the international community that saw the urgency of this. Great Britain's holding back these mobs, and they're pounding their fists on the table telling this young government, you've got to get these people out of here, or their blood's going to be on your head. And so one of the airlifts of, of many was the Yemen, Yemenite airlift, Yemenite Jews, 1948 to 1949. 50,000 Yemenite Jews, one of the most dangerous airlift campaigns of the entire project. Not very powerful, persuasive selling points to get people to line up to bid on the contract. Very dangerous campaign. Expect high casualties. Probability of being shot at when you're in the air and being bombed at when you're on the ground. One company bid on that airlift campaign. Tiny little air cargo company up in Alaska 
that had been doing a pretty good living, support, you know, bringing in oil and, and real estate prospectors and, and, and provisions for wealthy hunting guides and, and fishermen. And they'd been tugging on the sleeve of the FAA for years, begging them to let them have the official FAA route from Anchorage to Seattle and Portland. They wanted to become a full bona fide airline. And they were, said, they were just dismissed with a sniff and a roll of the eyes. You're, you don't have the financial wherewithal. You can't do that. But they bid on this airlift campaign, and the cash infusion that it brought in made them change their name to Alaska Airlines. Now, what's really interesting is, is that, uh, that the, the Yemeni Jews, they had never seen an airplane up close. They'd seen them only in the sky, and they just thought, that's a really, really weird bird. And now all of a sudden, you know, you've got one taxiing up to your refugee tent city to bring you out. And they're freaking out. They're petrified of it. But Robert McGuire, they called him the Irish Moses. He was a good Catholic boy, and he remembered his Sunday school lessons. And he, they actually took out, they found a can of paint, and they painted Exodus 19.4 over the door of the plane. And they said, you know how the Lord brought you, the Israelites out of Egypt on the wings of eagles? This is your eagle to bring you home to Israel. And they, and they piled right in. This is, not the, you know, this is not the photo. You'll see a clip in a second of the Ethiopian, but the, this, is, uh, this is an Ethiopian plane here. But, but the Yemenite one, they ripped the seats out of the plane so that they could pack them in like sardines. It was the, I mean, death was knocking on the door. They're hanging Jews in the town square in Cairo. And so to, to, with all the urgency that they could, with near recklessness, they ripped the seats out, and planes that were supposed to carry 60 people carried 180 people. Now, you don't have to be a math genius to know that when you do that to the weight load, the payload of the plane, it tampers with the range with the fuel load of the plane. And Robert McGuire learned that the hard way on his first run when he runs out of fuel over Port Assad, Egypt. They're hanging Jews in Cairo, He's out of fuel. Now, mind you, this guy, he's, he's a former fighter pilot and an Alaska bush pilot. And I've, I have flown with an Alaska bush pilot. They fly hot rod planes with oversized tires that are underinflated, and they can land them on the shelf of a mountain like you're throwing a land dart. I rode with one once, and I will not ride with one a second time. <laughs> My point is that they have nerves of steel, that nothing makes their palms sweat. You know, like would you or I. And so as, he's t as he lands on the runway and military vehicles are on both sides with their weapons pointed at them and the tower radios down to them, state your business. He's got a plane full of Jews. He radios up to the tower. I'm going to need every ambulance, every hospital bed, every doctor, every nurse. I think every passenger on this plane has smallpox. Dead silence from the tower for a few seconds. Don't open the door. We're going to refuel you. You're to take off immediately. <laughs> and they did those, air, you know, those airlift campaigns. They went on all around the Arab nations. They went on into the 70s and the, and the 80s and 90s. And, you know, it, it, in Ethiopia, the Ethiopian government, they were about ready to ma start massacring Ethiopian Jews. I will tell you, and a lot of people don't realize this, a lot of, a lot of people of color don't even realize that the only time in our history that Africans have been removed from Africa to go to freedom was when they were airlifted out of Ethiopia to go to Israel. It was the only time where they were actually airlifted out of Africa to go to freedom. Isaiah 11, and it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will set his hand the second time to recover the remnant of his people from Syria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. In 1948, there were 30,000 Jews living in Syria. And that's not 2013. Most of these, you could say, a year and a half or two years later. A year and a half or two years later, there were zero. In Egypt, 75,000. A couple years later, less than 100. This is, you know, the UN would love for you to give them credit for this. The Lord fashioned the UN as a midwife to do what he was going to do. No one gets credit for what he's doing here. The UN didn't do this. The president didn't do it. Theodore Herzl didn't do it. Christian Zionists didn't do it. The, the, the Lord himself did this. He gathered the nations together to do what confounded them and would be against their nature to be a midwife to usher in the rebirth of the Jewish homeland. In Libya, 38,000 in, in 48. A couple years later, zero. 
135,000 in Iraq, and a couple years later, zero. Isaiah 66, before she was in labor. Now, there are people in this room that have read this passage more times than they can count or remember, but I bet you most of them never caught the fact that this text is backwards. It's inverted from the, what makes sense. But think about it in the context of Israel. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. You don't give birth before you go into labor. But she did, Israel did. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in a day, or a nation be born at once? And many millions of Christians believe that that's exactly what happened on May 14th of 1948, because God is a promise keeper. You take, we're going to look at the Esdralon Valley. If you, went, if you went to the Esdralon Valley 100 years ago, you couldn't get very close without being pretty well confident that you're going to contract malaria if it's a warm day. But you, you know, and, and when the Jews, until 1948, when war broke out, and I will tell you, there's nothing pure as a driven snow about war, and there are severe inequities in war. Bad things happen in war. You can't sugarcoat that. But before 1948 and that war broke out, not one square inch was procured by any Jews unless without a legal land tracts action. And they were fleeced with the inflation of the price and the worthlessness of the land. Sand dunes that seemed, you know, unirritable and, and, and swamps that were malaria infested. But you give Jews coming from the West, bringing Western agriculture technology, you allow them to play over overinflated prices for swampland, and this is what they will do with them in a couple years. They'll turn them into a breadbasket that will feed themselves and those around them. You take a look at some of these areas. Again, if, that, if I told you that picture was from southern Arizona or parts of New Mexico, you couldn't tell me otherwise. Ezekiel 36, And the desolate land shall be tilled, whereas it lay desolate in the sight of all that passed by it. When Great Britain took over the custodial role in the, in the fall, after World War I, they did the assessment, they did a census, they did an inventory of the land. They said large cultivable areas are left untilled, miles of sand dunes that could be redeemed are untouched. And again, Jews coming back using bringing Western agriculture technology. You go by that same area today, and not only does it look like Sonoma, but, it looks, but it's the fulfillment of the next passage. And they shall say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and it has. 36-35, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are become fenced and are inhabited. Tel Aviv is a world-class destination for vacations and for world industry. Cutting-edge technology. I mean, you talk about all blessos of blessed thee. The, the, you know, your instant messaging, your cell phone technology, I do not call that a blessing, by the way, but, uh, but that, that, it is cutting-edge technology, and, and, and you could go on and on and on. Non-radioactive medical scanning, and we could go on and on and on, and most of these things are pouring out of Tel Aviv. Why did God choose Israel? Pastor Tim alluded to this a second ago. He, he didn't know he did, but he did. Was it because they're holy? No. Was it because they're pure? No. Was it because they kept the law? No, they didn't. there's only one person that ever walked the earth that could keep the law. Was it because they deserved it or because they earned it? Nope. He did it because for his name's sake. He did it to prove to the world that he is, he'll do what he says he's going to do. Take a look at Ezekiel 36, 22. Therefore, therefore says, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. God is a promise keeper. And you can assure that if he kept all those promises and the ones that we could see around him, he can keep the one in John 3.16 as well. For God so loved the world that that if he gave his own, that he gave his only son, for whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God is a promise keeper, and if you just have the courage and take the time to look at what he's promised that he's going to do through Israel and to Israel, you're not going to. It's not going to be some fringy, slippery slope that you're going to go down. You're just going to emerge with a stronger faith than you entered in with.
You know, we would, if you want to, you know, if you were having an epiphany or if you arrived already with a conviction and resolve to do something tangible to stand with Israel, we would love for you to pop the hood of Christians United for Israel and check our oil and see if we are an organization that, uh, that does things, you know, in a way that you think uh, you'd like to be part of. Pastor Tim, I think, is, is, you know, I'll just tell you, uh, Jesus loves you, and I have an excellent plan for your life. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping that we, you know, that we'll be able to do more things in, in the Flagstaff area. Uh, but, you know, you can learn, this is not going to morph into a commercial for CUFI. Uh, just in the back in the foyer, grab this blue and white card. If you want to stay in tuned, fill that, you know, fill it out. Pledge does not mean that I'm going to commit financially. It just means, that, you know, that, that you believe Israel's a sovereign nation. You know, it's not the 51st state of the United States. It's a sovereign nation. You know, we, we, we can't dictate what she's going to do and not going to do. And if you believe, you know, she has the right to defend herself, but she doesn't defend herself because she has the right to. She defends herself and her citizens because she has an obligation to. And... And if you believe that's true and that she has the, you know, that she deserves to live in safety and security, then fill that out legibly and, and we'll keep you in the loop. And if you want to bring an event like this to your home church, uh, Pastor Tim will attest, it doesn't cost you a dime. Nobody paid for my airplane. Or, or this church, I, I never asked this church or anybody here to cover my airplane ticket or my rental car or my hotel. We're here because there are other donors that know the importance of casting this vision. And, and we'll do that for your church too if you want to do it. I think we will receive an offering, but it's not going to go to my hotel room or to my car. It's going to go right back here to Flagstaff to to raise money for scholarships to bring college students to our Washington, D.C. summit where they will get a critical thinking filter installed because they're, they're college professors. You saved up for years to send them to this learning institution thinking that they were going to be taught how to think, but the professors have a different agenda, and those institutions have been retooled long ago to where they're going to be taught what to think. And once they have that critical thinking filter installed, they'll vet the truth. They will demand the truth, and they're not going to hook their wagon to just whatever the guy at the front of the room is going to tell them. They're going to make sure that it's the truth. Our, our D.C. Summit this year is going to have uh, Dr. Charles Stanley, and uh, that's going to be our 10th annual D.C. Summit. I don't, I'm, not, I'm, I'm running a little bit short on time. Do I have time to just show that short clip? You know, this is... A, this, Oh, well, that's okay. All right. We're, all right. Then we're going to be here till three. So, <laughs> I, hey, Bob. Yeah, load up that other presentation, that five hour one. So, uh, <laughs> so there's a, here's a short clip. It's going to show you a little bit about the organization, and then we're going to circle back around. And I'm just going to challenge you to join us, to join myself, to join many of the leaders of this church of of being that salt and light that we're called to be, not just beyond the boundaries of this church, but within the, the political fabric of this nation. Because we, can't, we have to be proactive, not reactionary, when it comes to, you know, you, you know what sin means? It means to miss the mark, means to miss the target. And I'm guessing in this geographical area, there's probably a couple of hunters in this room. Uh, and you know that it only takes a degree to the right or a degree to the left, whether you're aiming a sight or drawn back an arrow and a bow, and it's going to determine whether you hit the red dot in the middle or you miss the target entirely. And this country just needs to be have its course change a little bit degree this way or that, and and that happens by people letting their elected officials know this is this is where we want you to stand, and this is the direction that our kids and grandkids nation needs to go. So, and this is why this organization was founded. Here's a glimpse of it. Israel's fight is our fight. We are one. We are united. We will not be discouraged. We will not be defeated. We will not be intimidated. We will not sit down. We will not be silent. We are the worst nightmare of the anti-Semites of the world. The victory is going to be ours. Thank you. Thank you for standing up for Israel. Thank you for standing up for the truth. Thank you for standing up for the one and only Jewish state. 
and may God bless you all. May God bless the United States of America. Thank you all. We are Christians United for Israel. United for Israel began in February 2006 with 400 evangelical leaders in San Antonio. Today we are the largest pro-Israel organization in America with over 1.25 million members who are ready to respond to the needs of Israel. That's <laughs> uncanny. It's got to be God. That's how I see it. The only way that you can pull that many people together in so short a period of time, uh, and you're talking about Christians from all across different denominations, is that they find a common denominator outside of Jesus, and that is God's people, Israel. It's a very important initiative, uh, uh, and the purpose is education. Uh, we wanted to educate uh, the Hispanic community in why we need to support the state of Israel. And so when we look at the Jewish narrative, the, the, the biblical, the theological, the scriptural, it's easy for us as, as biblicists, if you will, in our community to look at the Bible and say, not only is there a reason, but there's a responsibility and there's a right to support the Jewish state. And that's something that I'm proud to say that many, many of my African-American colleagues, pastors, friends, just educators, once we know we're on board, we're on board 100%. When asked whether or not they're pro-Israel, 66% of Americans say they are. But when asked their position on the conflict, only 32% of college students say they're pro-Israel. But I have a request, a plea to you. I urge you, redouble your effort on the campus. It's a very hostile place. We like to say that our college students are on the front lines of the battlefield. And that's because there's various opposition on college campuses. You've got opposition from student groups, you got opposition from faculty and staff, um, opposition from biased professors in the classroom. So there's enormous amounts of uh, opposition that students are up against when they're trying to do their pro-Israel activism on college campuses across the nation. People don't see the Israel issue from the light that a college student does. And I know this because I was, when I was in Middle Eastern Studies on my campus and I was getting involved with Kufi as a student, my experience with the Israel issue is far different than people in my church, people in my family, people in the community. You're not going to go to your grocery store and people are chanting Israel's apartheid state and the dairy aisle. You know, but you're going to find that pretty much anywhere you go on a college campus. Any major university has seen some level of anti-Israel sentiment, whether it's institutionalized or into the education system or it's clubs and other groups supported by faculty and staff on campus. I come to Kufi summits and events such as SALT to be better equipped with the truth and the facts. Abraham Lincoln said the philosophy of the classroom today will be the philosophy of the government tomorrow. Summit allows us to equip ourselves with that education, with that knowledge, with that training to go out there and really make a difference for Israel advocacy, for Israel, and to support the people of Israel. Thank you. Thank you, CUFI, for what you do. There are no greater supporters of the state of Israel than Christians united for Israel, the people at this conference, particularly the people here at dinner tonight. As a Jewish woman serving in the United States House of Representatives, I thank you for your extraordinary support. I do not support Israel because I am a Jew. I support Israel because I am an American, and it is in America's best interest to support its most reliable ally in the planet and the only democracy in the Middle East, and that, my friends, is the state of Israel. As the Jew stands in prayer, says, Ezri, where is my help going to come from? I'm surrounded. I'm aligned. 
God has answered our prayers. God has sent Kufai to the Jewish people. Irving's a precious friend, and we would never script or even, you know, hope or ask him to say something like that, but it's an incredibly encouraging word that he feels that way, and and, uh, we'll continue to hold up his arms. You know, if you look at in the world, and we're going to look at things tonight that are unfolding that are, you know, if the Apostle Paul didn't tell us to be anxious about nothing, there's plenty that we would be anxious about right now. Uh, but uh, but we need to remind ourselves, not only did it, was it not the UN or these other world powers that reestablished the state of, U, of, of Israel, uh, neither are they the defenders of Israel. The Lord God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the defender of Israel. This is what the Lord says, he who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight will the descendants of Israel ever cease to be a nation before me, declares the Lord your God. But I would suggest to you that he uses people like you and me to do that defending and delivering. He doesn't do pillars of smoke or part seas much these days. He uses people like you and me that are willing to raise our voice and speak up. And when I started doing this job in 2006, I was amazed and thrown off and in a bit of a quandary that I'd be invited to come and speak at a church that had an Israeli flag to remind their folks of Psalm 122 to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper that love thee. And that send money to food closets in Tel Aviv or mobilize trips to go to Israel to pump tourist dollars into the Jewish state. But when I had the audacity to suggest that we include political advocism also, they were repulsed that I would suggest that God's not in control or that prayer doesn't work or that faith isn't enough or that God needs their help. And I would suggest to you that that we're going to have to give an account one day about what we did, about what we knew. You know, it's I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to do something that I don't think Pastor Tim is going to be very comfortable with. I'm going to try to make a a biblical point about what the Bible doesn't say. If you take a look at the book of Nehemiah, we we see a man who had never been in Jerusalem before, but he prayed for that city and had a heart and love for that city like none of us ever have or ever will. And one day his brother, and and he's got a good gig. He's the cupbearer to the king. He gets to live in the palace. He's fairly dispensable, though, because his job is to die if somebody's trying to poison the king. But in the meantime, he's got a pretty good gig. He's going to eat the same food and drink the same drink that the king has, has pretty comfortable surroundings. He's got a personal relationship to some degree, even though he's a slave. And one day a writer comes into town, and he asks to give a report about the, about the city, and his heart is broken when he finds out that the, the city's been scattered, the people have been scattered, the walls have been broken, the gates have been burned, and he goes into mourning as though he just learned that his father had died. And what does he do? He gets down on his knees and he's praying fervently. The point that I'm trying to make, though, about this passage is that Nehemiah didn't stay down on his knees with his talit wrapped over his eyes, praying until another writer came into town and said, hey, I've got great news. Somebody else rebuilt the city and somebody else regathered the people and somebody else rebuilt the walls and the gates. He prayed like none of us ever have or ever will, and then he got up from his knees and he interacted with the king and he got favor and he was given permission to cross foreign lands and to harvest the cedars to rebuild the, the gates. And with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other, he went and he tangibly acted. John the Baptist did not lose his head because he was baptizing people. John the Baptist lost his head because he confronted the government because they were in sin. I would suggest to you that that you grossly underestimate the significance of the influence of your single voice. You do not know, most of you do not know, that if you take, if there's an issue, if you're not one of those people, and you know who you are if you are, if you're not one of those people that that inundate your elected official or the publisher of the newspaper with ten things a day, if you keep your powder dry and you save your battles for for the ones that are important and that you can articulate professionally and eloquently, then, then when you send an email or when you take three minutes to make a phone call on an, on an issue that's important to you, 
your elected officials, receptionists, will make a hash mark on a dry erase board, and they think that represents 999 other people that feel the way you do but didn't bother to take three minutes to say so. If you take a few minutes and you write it out on a postcard and then you look up their address and then you put a stamp on it and then you walk to the mailbox and you put the flag up and it takes six weeks to go through the anthrax screening, they think that represents 10,000 people that feel the way you do but didn't bother to do that. So when you take the time and your vacation days and your vacation dollars to go to D.C. and you engage with them about this issue, and they're going to ask you, you're Jewish, right? No, I'm a Christian. And you came all the way from Flagstaff, New Mexico. They know how much, or Flagstaff, Arizona? Sorry. They, I, cover, I cover the 13 states west of Nebraska, and they all blur together sometimes. So, but they're gonna, you're going to think that they're not listening or paying attention to you if you're in their office, because they're used to dealing with alligator shoe-wearing lobbyists. And, they, and, and they're listening to you, but that glazed look is because they know how much you spent for an airplane ticket to get there. They know how many that you'd only get a few vacation days. And they know that this must be really important to you if you came all that way just to have them count your voice. And if a phone call represents 1,000 and a postcard represents 10,000, when you show up in their office in D.C., it's off the Richter scale. So you know who you are. If you've got the resources and the flexibility of your schedule, please consider joining us for what I guarantee would be a life-changing, history-shaping experience. Thank you for... Just allow me to be a guest, and I'll just uh, let you take a look at Joel 3.2, that uh, the Lord's going to use those how people deal with Israel, whether it's a person, a nation, or a church, how they deal with Israel, is that's how he's going to mete out his judgments and his mercies. From the guest of Pastor Tim Masters and Victorious Life Christian Center with this week's message on the Destined to Win podcast. Destined to Win is made possible with the prayerful and financial support of those destined to win. To donate online, visit vlccaz.org. That's vlccaz.org. Destined to Win is a production of Victorious Life Christian Centers with services Sunday mornings at 10 at the Flagstaff Middle School Complex. I'm Joe Harding. From Pastor Tim Masters and the congregation at Victorious Life Christian Center, you're invited to join us here next week for another edition of the Destined to Win podcast.